0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Albrecht was headed west on his first real and very dangerous mission as an agent working for the KGB. The prospects of being embedded in America were exciting to Albrecht, but first he needed to make a stop in canada once there he was to obtain a new identity as henry van randall
2: henry van randall was a young man who uh, passed away at an early age we were going to steal his identity he was one year younger than my real birth year and i liked the name van randall i was going to the u.s but as preparation i should spend some time in canada because That was as close to the US you can get without being there, getting a feel. And also practicing my English in social settings. That was really an excellent part of the plant, but this was a good idea.
1: The Soviet Union had worked for years on a playbook to get their agents into the West. The hard part was not just arriving in a foreign country like Canada or the United States. It was fitting in while disappearing.
0: I'm Gordon Carrera. I'm a security correspondent for the BBC and author of the book, Russians Among Us, um, which looks at uh, Russian illegals and espionage in recent decades. And I cover national security, intelligence, and related issues, and have been doing that kind for of close to 20 years. Carrera has written about
1: many of the illegals that hit out in the West, including the married couple Richard and Cynthia Murphy, who inspired the hit TV series, The Americans. Secret identities, no one has any idea who they are. They look like us, they speak better English than we do. We are
0: Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. We have been for a very long time.
1: Another illegal couple, Donald Heathfield and Anne Foley, hid out in Canada for a whopping 10 years before entering
0: the States. Heathfield um, and Foley as they became, I mean, the real identities were two Canadian babies who died shortly after birth in the 1960s. But then they were given to this pair of Russian illegals, a a couple in the 80s, and they were trained for a number of years and then sent first to Canada. And what what I found remarkable is that this couple were basically given a mission of spending a decade building their cover in Canada and also in in France before they actually go to the United States, which is the main target. So there's a decade, decade of basically building up your cover, building up your contacts, getting a job, you know, kind of getting the documentation, working, building contacts. But but you're still in effectively
1: preparation mode. And the best place to essentially practice before arriving in the States? North of the border in Canada.
0: Canada does seem to have been used quite a lot by the... Uh, Russian intelligence services and the Soviet intelligence services. Clearly, their main enemy, as they described it, was the United States. That's where you wanted to end up. But Canada was, a, you know, a perfect stopping off point. It was a place where it was easier to get into, less likely perhaps to be under surveillance, easy to build an identity and then to move over the border. The language, of course, you could learn aspects of American culture, language there and kind of perfect them in Canada. So for a long time, Canada does appear to have been the, 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 More than just the transit location, the kind of training location, the place where you built your cover and identity before you headed for your main target.
1: These illegals lived as ghosts, often taking the identities of children that had died, assuming their names and becoming someone else entirely.
0: Ghost Stories was the codename for the FBI investigation into Russian illegals, the deep cover spies who were arrested in 2010 by the FBI, and they got that code name within the FBI they picked it and but it was also quite apt because in some ways they were chasing ghosts they were chasing people who'd adopted the identities of babies children who died in some cases and had taken those identities and had almost raised new people from the dead to to take those children's identities and then become Canadians, Americans, and to to live out a life in the West whilst hiding the fact that you were really a Russian spy. So they really were ghosts.
1: This system of transplanting illegals had worked for the KGB well before the rise of the Cold War. Documents were easier to forge and identities were easier to create. But being placed under deep cover took meticulous planning and time.
0: The KGB thought it had a system which worked, and which had worked back from its early days, um, even before it was called the KGB, kind of 20s and 30s. And they believed that it was an effective way of putting these people in under deep cover. And in a way, they were able to do it partly because of the way documentation worked. And it's hard to imagine these days that you could create a false identity in that way. So it was much easier for a long time to be able to kind of take an identity or create an identity, um, often starting with the birth certificate and then building upon it um, to get what they called an iron legend, you know, eventually ending up with a kind of full identity and a passport um, in, in your new identity, but to slowly and patiently build that.
1: Albrecht too would become someone else and build his own iron legend. The KGB told him his trip was to be three months and could lead to future missions in the United States, this was not going to be an easy task for Albrecht. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent.
2: I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 5. My Name Is. There were like... Three tasks, major tasks, that I had. First of all, become acclimatized to living in an English-speaking, almost American English-speaking country. Get to know how people operate there, because there's a lot of things that they can't teach you in Moscow. Uh, Secondly, was to obtain a copy, certified copy of Van Randall's birth certificate. And the third, they asked me to collect some intelligence about the third party, which was pretty much on the left.
1: His orders were to obtain the birth certificate of one Henry Van Randall. He went by the name Heiner and told those he met in Canada that he was from Hamburg, Germany.
2: Supposedly my home was in Hamburg. And that was slightly risky because I didn't know, I didn't have a clue what Hamburg was all about. So I had to really stay away from other Germans. I, I had become a regular in a bar where I was socializing with people, and I walk into the bar and one of my f- Canadian friends says, hey, there's a bunch of Germans here, you want to meet them? So I, I had to figure out how to get out of there real quick, and I said hello, and I a guys, I have a headache, I need to leave. Because, you know, I didn't want to get into a situation to, to talk about our country. Albrecht
1: loved being in Canada and he was surrounded by a wealth of sensory and material distractions that was far removed from his time as a young boy back in Germany, when times had been so tough on him and his family. This was exciting. And though he had to keep his cover
2: secret, he set out to explore. Montreal was an interesting playground. There was also a big department store. And I was just amazed by how many different carpets you can buy there. I was always sort of domestic. (laughs) And I wasn't too much into clothes, but yeah, I bought a pair of jeans. It was an eye-opener, and, and the people were nice. I once sat down at a bar in the afternoon, right next to the Forum, and I had a chat with a young lady, just totally innocent. And then a man joined us, and we talked for a little while. And then he said, do you know who I am? I said, No. Well, he knew I was from West Germany at that point. He said, I'm the trainer of the Montreal Canadiens. Here's a ticket, you know, and I was into ice hockey at that time because, you know, I spent too much time in Moscow and that was the biggest sport. I was at the Forum when this biggest superstar that they had at the time, Guy Lefleur, broke the record for goals in the Forum. And when he scored that goal, there was pandemonium, like for five minutes, the game was interrupted.
1: The task of fitting in and looking normal was key for Albrecht, but most importantly, he needed to secure the birth certificate of Henry Van Randall.
2: They determined that it was quite feasible through the mail. They gave me the address of the office in California. And they told me enough information about Van Randall, when he was born, where he was born, and name of mother and father. That's all that was needed. Then the plan was to buy a um, money order for the fee and write a cover letter. I'm Henry Van Randall. Please send me a certified copy of my birth certificate, the fee included in this money order. That seemed pretty easy, right? Could he
1: actually pull this off and arrive back in Moscow, a hero with his new prize, all on his first big mission? In order to receive the birth certificate, Albrecht needed a home base that wouldn't draw suspicion. He came up with a plan and waited.
2: So I had to find myself a small hotel and then befriend the caretakers to intercept that mail. So my return address didn't indicate it was a hotel. I hung out with those caretakers, you know, an elderly couple, uh, they were Belgians. They were so happy that I just spent some time with them. And we, you know, we became friends, they even introduced me to their son. I hung out with him a little bit. After about 10 days, I introduced him to the idea that there's a friend of mine who is sort of an itinerant, and he's expecting some mail. His name is Henry, and he asked me to, to intercept this. And they said, well, we're going to look out for this. And so I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I don't want to ask every day, did it come? Did it come? And I was supposed to spend one month in Montreal. After about three and a half weeks, I asked them. So no, no letter from my friend? Nope. So what do I do now? I had to figure out what's going on. So I found the phone number for that office and called him up. And I says, I'm Henry Van Randall. I feigned anger. I said, what's the matter with you guys? You know, I sent, I sent you money, I you got my money. Where's my birth certificate? And I said, well, uh, hopefully I'm going to get what is due me. I need that document. So about 10 days later, I walked downstairs where those uh, two fo- Belgian folks lived, and I see a stack of mails, and on top of it is Henry Van Randall. I says, hey, that's for my friend. He says, yeah. I took it. I didn't go upstairs right away. You've got to be careful here, so I didn't want to send a signal that I was waiting for this. I opened this thing and I almost fell off my chair because it was a copy of a birth certificate, but the cross from left corner to up, uh, upper right was stamped in large red letters, deceased. This was one of the greatest disappointments in my entire life. That's like somebody screaming at me, you idiot. <laughs> Think about it. So here was a dead person asking for his own birth certificate So something was wrong. I didn't want to flee the country. I, I probably should have. Stubborn as I am, I just wanted to continue with the mission. But I knew I had to get out of there. And it appears then the Americans notified Canadian authorities that something is fishy about this guy and the royal mounted police was chasing after me they knew the address right and they talked to the caretakers there's even a police sketch based on the description that they gave so i was really close to being caught i left i took a bus to windsor and i didn't leave a trace their mistake was not to notify passport control on the way out they could have caught me right then and there. The clerk who did that made a mistake. They should have just notified immediately the authorities, and I was a sitting duck. I would would have stayed some longer you know, in that little hotel, and one day somebody would knock. Ah, we are Royal Mounted Police. We would like to talk with you. Though he had
1: not been caught, Albrecht considered his mission a failure, and he arrived back in Moscow, not knowing whether he would ever land in the United States.
2: I arrive in Moscow, oh God, too bad. We don't know what to do with you now. We need to do a reset. You know, you're a fully trained agent, you speak English very well, but we don't have documents. So you need to go back to Berlin and just hang out there. With nothing much to do, there's no more training. I had nothing to do. I'm going back to my apartment. I think Elinda was in that place once. There's a knock on the door. I open the door and there she is. How did she know? Nobody knew that I was going to be back, not my parents, not my mother, my brother, nobody. I had just arrived. How did she know? Did she know? She didn't. She told me she didn't know. And so the first words out of her mouth says, do you still love me? There was only one answer to that. The answer was yes. is back in my life. But it's different. Now, I'm a fully trained agent. I knew that I was special, and I figured I might as well tell Nikolai what happened. Nikolai never knew about Kalinda's existence. It
1: was again time to come clean with Nikolai, but this time, the outcome would be much different.
2: What I didn't know at the time was that the KGB actually preferred couples. So they initially looked at Kalinda and she failed miserably, because, you know, she, she had uh, graduated from university with a teaching degree and she started teaching in a country school and uh, she couldn't take the pressure. She was psychologically weak. This woman cannot operate in, in secrecy in another country. The other side of the coin is if you have a family in the country, back in your home country, the probability of you defecting is significantly lower. So because you have an anchor there. With her eyes wide open, she said, I'm willing to take that because in my two years absence, she had been looking for male companionship and they didn't measure up. According to her, she said, it's, it's either me or nobody. Now I had my cake and could eat it too, right? So I had, I had the woman that I still loved and I still could go and, uh, and do the adventure and become a hero and, and a big star. This was just the, the, the perfect combination. That's pretty bad, egomaniacal approach to life, right? She knew I was gonna be an illegal, and she knew the country I was going to operate in. That's it, no more. We didn't talk about anything else. She didn't ask, and I didn't tell.
1: Albrecht was happy to be back together with Gerlinda. He was not given much to do, and they spent time together while Moscow worked on his next assignment.
2: I never really asked questions I waited for them to tell me things, so I didn't ask Nikolai. I just waited. Totally contrary to the way I'm wired, because I'm very curious, but in this situation, I I was always a good boy, and was waiting for the instructions.
1: Months passed, and Albrecht waited for news of a new mission to the West. He wondered if he'd even be given another chance. It was possible this could be the end of the road. That his failure to secure the birth certificate in Canada was too much for Moscow to consider another trip.
2: But then, one day, I got notified by Nikolai America's back in business, we have a birth certificate. So now the countdown starts. Albrecht and Gerlinda grew closer still, and they
1: continued their romance, knowing that the inevitable day would come and they would again be separated. Unlike their previous experience, Saying goodbye this time was easier.
2: We were given a vacation spot by the Baltic Sea. It was a nice place. It very private. We spent two and a half weeks there, and then it was on to Moscow for a different kind of goodbye. This was not sad. It was, okay, I'm going to see you in two years. I went to Moscow with nothing but optimism, and she just sucked it up. Their time together passed quickly and Albrecht shifted his eyes to
1: America to pursue his dream role as a spy in the West. Armed with steely determination to succeed, he would stop at nothing to become a sleeper agent in America.
2: The moment I got on the plane, I forgot all about her. I left her behind. That was the right thing to do. And it's my ability for extreme compartmentalization, right? I was going to morph into some other person. I was going to be an American. So I didn't have a German past. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. It wasn't a a mental illness, it was manufactured.
1: And the man born Albrecht Dietrich would once again be tasked with transforming himself into someone else entirely.
2: I knew now a different name, the Jack Barsky name.
1: Albrecht Dietrich would transform into a new version of himself he was to become Jack Barsky but who exactly was Jack Barsky
2: Jack Barsky was born November 13th 1944 and he passed away 11 years later this grave is in a Jewish cemetery in Maryland one of those KGB agent was wandering around in a graveyard, and he found this one, it looked really good, and managed to acquire eventually that boy's birth certificate. And it wound up in Moscow. Then we built a backstory, a cover story legend, based on that name. To pull off his new persona,
1: Jack worked with Alex to develop a backstory. The backstory needed to be thorough and he needed to be able to remember all of the details of his new life history.
2: It's photographs of schools that I supposedly went to, elementary school, middle school, photograph of a building where I grew up on the Upper West Side in New York. Some materials about the chemical factory that didn't exist anymore, but where I worked for a while. And I then fantasized and figured out what it was like growing up. I took a lot of my uh, friends and family with me sort of as characters, renamed them with English names. If ever I had to describe my first teacher, I would like have a picture in my mind, you know, what she looked like. I still remember what she looked like now, but I renamed her. The parents he hadn't seen in years
1: were still present, but he reimagined them now in a new mythology as Jack
2: Barsky. We made this into a rather uh, tragic childhood. So my father, we killed him off by the time I was maybe three years old, heart attack. So I grew up with my mother and I invented uh, migraine headaches. That's why I didn't finish uh, high school. I dropped out. Albrecht had studied chemistry in
1: school, so his backstory now had him working in a chemical factory in New York.
2: They thought it was a good idea and I agreed. I knew a little bit about chemistry, right? In that time frame, my mother had a fatal accident in New York. She was run over by a car. So I'm all by myself and I just checked out of society. And I went to upstate New York and uh, worked on a farm f- for several years.
1: Backstory now complete, preparation for the journey west began in earnest. Sergei helped him prepare.
2: It's a already cool day in October in Moscow when uh, Sergei shows up in the morning, and that was the day of my departure. So he double-checked my luggage, he double-checked what I was wearing, because I obviously couldn't have anything with me that didn't originate in the West somehow. So then he hands me freshly printed $100 bills that was not forged money, this is real. By today's Counting, it's probably the equivalent of almost fifty thousand. It was a lot of money. I had a big wallet, and the birth certificate was sewn into that thing. And I had a a a pad like a notepad that was used as contact paper for secret writing, and a shortwave radio, commercially available shortwave radio, where you could really fine tune frequencies like with a little knob, and that was all I had. Day zero
1: was finally here.
2: With a bundle of anticipation
1: and excitement, Albrecht was ready to depart on his mission.
2: And so we, we drive to sheret Airport with you know the limo that usually transported me back and forth. The ticket was for a flight to Belgrade, which was then the capital of Yugoslavia. Sergei checked in the suitcase for me. And then we went into a remote corner of the departure hall. That was a back door to bypass customs or whatever. I was already used to it because I traveled like this back and forth between Berlin and Moscow. I was just like a ghost. You know, I took my carry-on uh, that I had that included the radio and that, uh, that writing pad, They're very important for communication. The $10,000 I distributed through a number of pockets. I had a jacket and jeans, you know, two thousand here, two thousand there, and ten thousand dollars and hundred dollar bills, about an inch and a half thick. So it wasn't too bad. It wasn't really too bulky. So I get on a plane, and here I am on my own. The moment I'm through that door, there was no more goodbye. I, I was gone. I was now on my own. For that moment, I had prepared five years for that. Uh, the, The state of mind that I went into, I call it execution mode. When you do not allow thoughts into your mind that have nothing to do with what you need to do, and all I need to do there is find my plane, sit there, and fly. I purposely didn't try to think about things. You start thinking about things, doubts might come into your head. Once you have a doubt, this may become fear. And once you have fear of whatever it is, you you're more likely to make a mistake. I was focused on what was ahead. Albrecht's head was swimming with a library's
1: worth of details he needed to remember for his trip. He had excelled in his training and had prepared the best he could for his arrival in New York City. But there were many pitfalls ahead that could cause the mission to fail even before he stepped foot on American soil.
2: We had a roughly a six-page long communication plan with addresses, uh, with signs, with radio frequencies. Lots and lots of disconnected, unconnected facts. And I was really good at, at cramming stuff into my head. My handlers asked me if I wanted to have some kind of a gadget with a secret compartment where I can have have this all written down. And I said, no, absolutely not.
1: Before assuming his American identity as Jack Barsky, Albrecht Dietrich would be given multiple passports, always changing identities along the way.
2: Each passport came with a backstory, name, address, birth date. All of that had to be memorized. Now I also also changed languages.
1: The trip to the United States was not a straight shot. There would be a number of stops on the long and winding road to his final destination.
2: The only full name I remember of a, a false passport that I used, and it was William Dyson, because that's the one I, I used to enter the United States with. And that just stuck in my head. We went Yugoslavia, Austria, Italy, Mexico, and the US. We went step by step into the Western world. Yugoslavia was the one country in those days that was was relatively open to the West, but it was still a communist country, right? Then you have a neutral country, Austria, and then Italy, now we got NATO. And from there, you know, in the US, the various steps were necessary to make it impossible to trace me back to Moscow. Impossible. Having
1: successfully navigated multiple stops in Europe, Albrecht's next destination was a dramatic departure from the bluster and cold he was used to.
2: Got a ticket to Mexico City. It was a stopover, but as I get off the plane, it's hot! It was like an assault. It was probably 95 degrees. I had just come from like 45 in Vienna. The trip
1: had been exhausting, and he finally boarded yet another flight and departed Mexico City. The ticket said Toronto, with a planned layover in Chicago. Upon landing in Chicago, he had no intention of continuing on with the trip. He was here to stay. He had finally arrived in America, and he needed to be ready for his next big
2: test, customs and immigration. This was the tensest minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes of my life. This is it. You get this feeling that, you know, everybody knows that there's something not right about you, even though I was calm, but my hands were a little bit, you know, the palms of my hands were maybe a little bit wet, but sweat did not run down my face, but you, you just get this feeling that you're a marked man. Immigration guy looked at my passport and says, oh, t- Toronto. So what you're doing here? Oh, I just want to just, you know, visit the city a little bit before I go home. Okay. Have a good time. That was it. Yes! I'm in.
1: Albrecht, now going under the name William Dyson, had succeeded. He had stepped foot into enemy territory, into the United States of America. He had remembered all the critical instructions given to him by the KGB to get him to this point. But the details of what exactly he should do next were sketchy. There was no agent waiting to pick him up. No luxurious spy lair he would be hiding out in. There was no playbook to follow. Albrecht was a stranger in a strange land. And what he did next would be done on his own.
2: The rest of it would be easy, right? This is where the hard part started. I had to find a hotel. In Moscow, nobody gave me any hints because they couldn't. They had no idea. They would have, would have had to look into a phone book the way I did. I don't know by what reasoning I used. I got a hotel name and an address. and I, I hail a cab. Then I told the man, this is the address. And he turned around and looked at me funny. And it was already dark. So I get the feeling, though, that The neighborhoods uh, that we're driving through get progressively worse looking. The hotel looked halfway decent. It was a multi-story brownstone walk into the lobby. And that was really an odd feeling that came over me. And then I go towards the registration desk and there's plexiglass in front of it. There was a TV in the room. You had to put a quarter in for a half hour to watch a half hour TV. At least I was in a hotel. I was in the U.S. I had, I had passed border controls. It was time to relax, so I drank a half a bottle of whiskey while I was watching TV. And I was just like, passed out.
1: Though his first night in America was nothing like he had imagined, Albrecht did have a job to do. His first order of business was to settle into his new identity.
2: My task now was to get rid of the passport and have nothing but the birth certificate as documentation with me. I'd also decided to kill the Canadian and become Jack Barsky. I had to destroy the Canadian passport and uh, in my room, I went back into the room, into the bathroom, locked the doors, removed the birth certificate from its hiding place and then proceeded to destroy the passport. And I thought I would burn it. Well, we didn't really practice destroying passports because the damn thing didn't burn at all. Nothing burned, not even the paper. It was, it was flame retardant or almost flame proof. As I'm trying to light this with my cigarette lighter, it made a stink, smoke, heavy smoke. And this could have triggered fire alarm it didn't so you know i just like i stopped trying and what i did instead i just cut to cut this into small pieces and fl- flush it down the toilet
1: and on that day october seventh, 1978 he would no longer be known by the names william dyson or albrecht dietrich this was the day he would permanently become jack barsky he was an undercover agent hiding in plain sight He had no weapon, armed only with the instructions in his head, a birth certificate, a suitcase, and a stash of cash. The road to get to America had been equal parts exhausting and tedious, and his time in Chicago was a bumpy introduction to the country he would now call home for the next few years. But finally, Jack Barsky was on his way to explore New York City.
2: get on a plane, and fly to New York. You didn't need ID to get on a plane those days. Amazing, isn't it? There was no TSA, there was no ID check, nothing. Pay in cash for your ticket, it was really easy for spies and criminals to travel around <laughs> those days. There was very little security, and this was in the height of the Cold War. It's pretty lax. The country was wide open for people like me. It was so easy to get in. And it was still relatively easy to actually acquire bona fide documentation. So I get on a bus from LaGuardia uh, to Grand Central. So, and as we are emerging from the tunnel, I'm thinking, my God, those streets are really narrow because of the tall buildings left and right, it squeezes everything. Jack Barsky
1: was here, and he would be calling it home for the next two years.
2: Here I am, this is my destination.
1: Jack Barsky had arrived in the center of the Western world. What lay ahead for Jack was to be the beginning of another truly remarkable chapter in his life as an agent for the KGB. He was all alone, living and hiding amongst the millions. Next time on The Agent.
2: No one has eyes on him whatsoever. He's not being followed. No one is suspicious of him. That is when you when you know that you're lying to your own mother. Every word you're to your right is a lie. Finding an illegal in the wild is incredibly hard. The whole idea was to establish yourself as a functioning member of society. That means you had to have a decent job. You're not even looking for a Russian because they're, they're not a Russian. So I looked like the dumb farm boy that I pretended to be. And so the interview went very quickly, a couple of minutes. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy
0: and is created, written, produced and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening.